The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Um, our scripture reading for this morning is Revelation 14, 1 through 15, 4. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll read it together. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city, 
and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, I wonder if this world um, ever feels like a wilderness to you. We've actually seen the book of Revelation uh, compare the church's life in this world to the Old Testament wilderness wanderings of Israel. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 42 years. Two years plus 40 they were sentenced to wander around because of disobedience. If you read Numbers chapter 33, you can actually add up their encampments, and they made 42 encampments in 42 years. 42 That's a number that Revelation has actually already made familiar to us. Is this not one of the numbers that Revelation has symbolically used as a picture of the church age, the time between Christ's resurrection and his return? Chapters 11 and chapter 13 both symbolically called that time period 42 months as a way of connecting it with the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Has this world ever felt like a wilderness to you? That's because... Revelation says that's exactly what we, the church, are journeying through, the wilderness of this world. We may be on our way to the promised land of the new Jerusalem, but the way there lies through the wilderness, and the wilderness is hard. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that chapters 12 to 13 of Revelation have been aiming to empower us and equip us in order to endure until the end of this journey through the wilderness of the world. Do you remember chapter 12 empowered us by giving us a vision of our ultimate enemy, the dragon, Satan, who comes after us in the wilderness of this world? Chapter 13 equipped us to see the means by which he comes after us. He does it through beasts. These chapters have empowered and equipped us so that we will not be deceived by the words and the wounds that Satan's beasts use to try to get us to quit instead of conquer. No, we will instead be empowered and equipped to endure. Shades, we are to endure. And and endure not just by withstanding the attacks of the enemy. That's kind of what we've been focusing on so far in 12 and 13. But we're not just to endure by withstanding the attacks of the enemy, but by advancing the cause of our king. This is why we need Revelation chapter 14. Shades, Revelation 12 to 14 is not merely aimed at empowering and equipping us to defensively survive the wilderness of this world, but also to offensively bring life to the wilderness of this world through the gospel of Christ. These chapters 
aim to empower and equip us to endure in our offensive mission. Our offensive mission, bringing the gospel to the world. Our offensive mission to show the world the worth of Christ through our words and through our wounds. Revelation 14 empowers us for that. Revelation 14 equips us for that. And most of all, Revelation 14 calls us to endure in that shades. This morning, let's hear and heed the call of Revelation 14 to endure in our mission of showing the gospel to the world through our words and our wounds. Begin reading with me to hear and heed this call. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is where we ended last week. Like If you remember, chapter 13 concluded talking to us about the beast and his people who had received his mark on their head or on their hand, in other words, their thoughts and all of their deeds, their lives pledge allegiance to the beast, and they war against the people of the Lamb. And apparently it looks like they win. And do you not remember Revelation 13 and verse 7? It says, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, to pressure them, to persecute them. To, to kill them. Shades in the wilderness of this world, the church does not look like it wins. We don't look like we conquer. We look like we are conquered. In this world, the church does not look like it wins. Not if the church is following the Lamb. He went to a cross. He looked like he was conquered. And we do the same. The Lamb's victory was not made clear until Resurrection Sunday. And our victory shades, our conquering, will not be clearly seen until the day of our resurrection when our Lamb returns. Shades, in this life, we, the church, we look like we lose. But that's why these first five verses of chapter 14 are such good gospel news. Right after chapter 13 has shown us the beast and his people from an earthly perspective looking like they conquer. Right after that, right here, we get God's heavenly perspective of true ultimate reality. And what do we see? We see Christ's victorious army. The church triumphant. We see the lamb and his 144,000. Remember, that is a symbol all the way back from chapter 7. It is a military symbol. It's, it's, it's an image of God's complete people throughout all time from all places as his victorious army. They're not marked by the beast. They don't bear the beast's name. They'll remember back in chapter 7, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And right here in 14.1, we're told that seal is the name of God the Father and the name of the Son on their forehead. In other words, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, our lives are pledged in allegiance to the triune God. We are seeing the saints of the triune God who have just waged war with the beast, not with the weapons of the world, but with the word of their testimony. 
and their willingness to suffer wounds to show forth the worth of Christ. That's how Revelation 12.11 tells us that they conquer, that we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their life even unto death. Wounds, words, and wounds. These are the church's weapons. And to the world it may look like the church has lost. But here we see them standing on Mount Zion in the New Jerusalem in victory formation. We know they're victorious because they sing a new song. Throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, new songs were sung to celebrate God's victory, his victory over an enemy. Like, like to, to go back to wilderness and Exodus imagery, remember when the, God brought his people out of Egypt and he led them through the Red Sea and the sea collapsed on the Egyptians trying to follow them and he defeated their enemy? What did the Israelites do when they were on the far side, when they were on the shore on the other side of that event? They sang a new song to celebrate God's victory. They called it the Song of Moses. Likewise, these saints in Revelation 14, they have been saved from the wilderness of this world. They have been brought into the true promised land of the New Jerusalem, and they sing a new song, one that only those who have been saved like this can sing. It's a song of the redeemed. It can only be sung. Song of redemption can only be sung by those who've experienced it. It's a song of victory. Which begs the question, like, how have they been victorious? How exactly, like we've said to the world, it looks like these people have been conquered. So how are we supposed to see that they have actually been the ones doing the conquering? Look at verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth there is no lie found, for they are blameless. We're told that they've conquered defensively and offensively. Defensively and offensively. Defensively, we're told, they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are Virgins, this is symbolic betrothal language, engagement language. Okay, Through, Throughout Scripture, God's people are pictured as his betrothed bride. The church is pictured, even in Revelation, as his betrothed bride. We're eventually going to make it to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we live in the wilderness of this world, we are his betrothed, his engaged and and not only that, but throughout Scripture, including in the book of Revelation, going after false gods has been compared to sexual unfaithfulness. You go after false gods, that's called spiritual adultery or spiritual promiscuity. In other words, what this symbolic language is showing us right here is that this army of God has conquered defensively by not giving their allegiance to the beast and the dragon. In other words, they have not taken on this world as a lover. They have not taken on any false god. No, they have remained faithful to Christ. They've conquered defensively, but they have also conquered offensively. For we're told they follow the lamb wherever he goes, and we know that the lamb goes to a cross to the place of sacrifice where he lays down his life to cover the sins of all who trust in him. And these saints have followed their lamb down the path of sacrifice. We know that because of verse 4. Verse 4 compares them 
to a first fruits sacrifice. In other words, they too have laid down their lives and we're told what they've laid down their lives to do. They've laid down their lives to testify to Christ through their words and their wounds. That's what verse 5 says. That's how it concludes. Look at it. In their mouth was found no lie. In other words, they bore witness to the truth through their words. In their mouth there was no lie found, for they are blameless. Blameless. That's the language of sacrifice. Your, your lamb that you offered had to be blameless, spotless. In other words, they've borne witness with their wounds. All of that right there is language drawn from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus, our lamb, who laid down his life as a blameless sacrifice. He did so bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. For Isaiah 53, 9 says that in his mouth there was no lie. These saints have conquered by following the Lamb. They've conquered by being conquered. And so now they sing a new song of victory. It's just the concluding chorus of a song that they've actually been singing all throughout their lives. A song that they've been singing all along, for in their mouth there has been no lie, only the truth of Christ. They have lived singing a song of the worth of Christ, a song that they've sung with their words and their wounds. It's the song of the eternal gospel. And Shades, Revelation 14 is empowering us right here to sing along. It's empowering us by showing us the conclusion of the song of the gospel. By showing us that no matter how much it looks like we lose in this life, the song of the eternal gospel concludes with a course of eternal victory. Do you see how seeing that future empowers your present? Seeing how the song concludes empowers you to sing it when you're in the midst of some really dark verses. Chapter 14 of Revelation is empowering us not to merely survive in the wilderness of this world, but to offer the wilderness of this world life through the gospel of Christ. The rest of this chapter is aimed at equipping us to endure in singing the song of the gospel to the world. We want you to endure, equip you to endure in singing the song of the gospel to the world. It does this by showing us four things about our song. Song, I'm just using that. Singing, I'm just using that as a metaphor for testifying to the gospel. Because it is beautiful music. And so the rest of this chapter aims to get us to endure in singing the song of the gospel to the world throughout all of our entire lives. And it does that by showing us four things about our song. Number one, our song indiscriminately proclaims the eternal gospel. Our song indiscriminately proclaims the eternal gospel. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, every nation and tribe and language and people. So this is right after we're told that the army of Christ, the church, 
has conquered by being a blameless sacrifice, lived testifying to the truth of the gospel with no lie in their mouth. Right after that, we are given a vision of three angels testifying to the truth of the gospel. I think, I think these visions are showing us what it has looked like for this army of Christ to wage war and conquer with words of truth, with the word of the gospel. I think we're seeing in this chapter what that has looked like for them, for us to live. I think we're seeing what it looks like for us to live singing the eternal gospel. Yes, admittedly, this is a vision of angels, heavenly messengers, because the gospel is a heavenly message. I admit it is a vision of angels, but I ultimately think it's a picture of the church's mission because no angel ever has declared the gospel to those who dwell on the earth. Closest you get is Acts chapter 10. And the angel there just shows up to say, go get Peter so he can declare to you the gospel. Angels don't declare the gospel to every nation and tribe and language. That's our task. That's our commission given to us by Christ. This is the song of our lives. And we live and die singing the song of the eternal gospel to the world. And Shade's revelation has shown us what that eternal gospel song is, has it not? Over and over again, has it not shown us what is the gospel? We've seen again and again the righteous and right wrath of God against sin. Revelation is full of some very difficult pictures of the wrath of God against sin. Some of the hardest ones we're about to get in just a moment. Revelation has shown us his wrath against sin, against evil, against brokenness, against injustice. It's right, and it is loving for God to remove evil, brokenness, injustice. We know that instinctively. We know it. We long for this. We cry for this. Shades, our streets, you can't flip on the news without seeing our streets filled with people who are crying out for justice for the removal of injustice, for an end to evil and oppression. For someone to heal the brokenness. We long for this. We cry out for this. And the gospel shows us that the wrath of God is the thing that brings this about. It will remove brokenness. It will remove evil. It will remove and set right all injustices. It will bring about perfect justice. That's good news, Shades. It's good news that evil will end. That injustice will be righted. Brokenness healed. It's good news until I remember that I have contributed to the injustice and brokenness of this world. It's good news until I remember that in order for the world to be rid of injustice, brokenness, evil, I too need to be removed. We all do. We all have contributed to the brokenness and injustice of this world. Show me the person who hasn't. We all deserve for God's wrath to remove us, but thanks be to God. He doesn't just express his love through wrath that removes, but he also expresses his love in grace that reconciles. 
graciously he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the blameless lamb, to take the wrath that we deserve, the removal that I deserve, the death that I deserve upon himself. And on the cross, Christ, the lamb, was slain. He wrestled down our sin and death into the grave, buried it, and left it there three days later when he walked out of the tomb. He rose victorious, sin, death, defeat. And all who trust in him, who treasure him, who embrace him, who love him, they're no longer destined to be removed by God's wrath. No, for we have been reconciled by God's grace. One day, the good news of the gospel says that Christ will return to bring that redemption to completion. Through final removal of evil, it will end. And through final reconciliation of all of his people. He will return, remove evil from the world, reconcile all things to himself. That is the eternal gospel, Shades. It's good news, and we will sing its song forever. Shades, we get to sing it right now. We get to sing it to the world. We sing it to all indiscriminately. Revelation 14 and verse 6 says that we sing this gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people. In other words, this is not a gospel for white people. This is not a gospel for black people. This is not a gospel for America or Asia or Australia or Africa or Europe. I don't know how Europe got left out of the A thing going on right there because even Antarctica gets included with the continents, but that's beside the point. This is not a gospel for Mountain Brook or Homewood or Inslee or Woodlawn. This is a gospel for all people. It's a gospel for the world. And we must not be a church that discriminates. We indiscriminately go to the world. Yeah, we start in Homewood, but we go beyond our borders until we reach the last one. We indiscriminately go to the world and we tell the world there's a a lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. That's why this is the eternal gospel. He's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of creation, and he is the lamb who will be celebrated forever in new creation. This gospel has always been the good news, and it always will be the good news. Our song indiscriminately proclaims the eternal gospel, and we invite the world to sing along. That's what we see in verse 7. Verse 7 shows us how we call the world to respond to the eternal gospel. And the angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, we say to the world, Fear God, not the dragon. Worship God, give Him glory, not any and every beast on the face of this planet. We say to the world, I know, I know that the the dragon, who we can say is a sky beast if we want, I know that the the dragon looks pretty powerful, like he can give you all the security that that you seek. I know that his his beast from the sea, who offers you promises of prosperity, he looks like he can give you all the satisfaction your heart desires. I know that his beast from the land, with all of his deceptive words, looks like he points you to the path of full forever joy. I know we're Wherever you look, heaven, 
earth, or sea. Satan seems to be conquering, but I promise the hour of judgment has come. Satan has been thrown down from heaven by the God who's sovereign over heaven, earth, and sea. Verse 7 says, worship him. Does it not? Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea. Every area the dragon tries to show you he conquers. Worship the God who created it all, is sovereign over it all, who will conquer it all. Worship him who made heaven, earth, and sea, and the springs. In other words, worship the Creator, not anything in creation. In Him alone, in God alone, will you find the security that you seek. In Him alone, in God alone, will you find the satisfaction that your heart desires. In Him alone, in Jesus alone, will you find full and forever joy. Jesus will fill you with joy, will fill you with a song to sing forever, the song of the eternal gospel. Shades, be empowered and equipped to endure. Not merely defensively by withstanding the attacks of the enemy. Be empowered to endure offensively advancing the cause of our king by teaching this world to sing along with the song of the eternal gospel. Our song indiscriminately proclaims the eternal gospel. Second thing we need to see, our song prophetically exposes false gospels. Our song prophetically exposes false gospels. Look at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is an echo straight from Isaiah 21, verse 9. If you go back there, Isaiah the prophet is, is speaking prophetically about the day when Babylon will fall. Ancient Babylon was one of the most powerful evil empires ever known in the ancient world. If you remember from the Old Testament, Babylon would actually eventually take Israel, the people of God, well, Judah, the people of God, into exile. And thus, for the people of God, it would become an icon of evil empires who oppose God and his people. In the world of the first century, to which Revelation is written, who do you think was there, Babylon? Rome. We talked about that a lot last week. Christians thought of Rome as their modern Babylon. Just read 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. Peter explicitly, clearly calls Rome Babylon. Rome was their Babylon. Revelation's going to call Rome Babylon a lot, but not just Rome. Because Babylon still exists even in our day. We live in a Babylon, do we not? Babylon is a symbol in Revelation for all the systems of this world that stand in, a, in opposition to God in the way that he created things to be. Babylon in Revelation is it's symbolic for all the systems of this world that try to stand in the place of God, take his place by promising that they can give you what only he can. True security, true satisfaction, true joy forever. Babylon always promises that they can give you these things because Babylon always thinks of herself as great like God. So not the title given to it in verse 8, Babylon the Great, 
First person to call it that was none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Go all the way back to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. And King Nebuchadnezzar thinks himself as great as a god, and he talks about his greatness and Babylon, his kingdom, Babylon the great. As soon as he boasts about being great like God, God actually curses Nebuchadnezzar to begin behaving like the beast he was becoming. Babylon always thinks herself great like God, but she is beastly shades. Don't buy into the lies that Babylon tries to force you to drink. Is that not the picture given to us in verse 8? We're told Babylon made the nations to drink the wine of her passion. The Greek word right there that's translated passion literally means wrath. Everywhere else it shows up in this chapter, it's going to get translated wrath. And I actually think it should be translated wrath right here. I think this verse should read, Babylon made the nations drink the wine of her wrath and her sexual immorality. Babylon always forces you to drink its wine. In other words, to comply with its culture. To comply with its demands. That is, if you want to share in the blessings that it offers... Babylon offers you security, satisfaction, full joy forever. You want that? You've got to comply with its culture. Drink down the wine. When we get to Revelation chapter 17, in a couple of weeks, we'll run into Babylon again, and there she's actually personified as, a, as a, the mother of all prostitutes is what she's called. And when we get this vision of Babylon as the mother of all prostitutes in chapter 17 and verse 6, we will actually see her drinking from a goblet, drinking a wine, a wine that we are told is the blood of the saints. It's the wine of wrath against all. It's, 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 it's the blood of the saints. It's the wine of her wrath against all who will not go along with her promiscuous ways. In other words, her idolatry. We've already said sexual immorality is a spiritual symbol for idolatry, right? Babylon portrayed as a prostitute is Babylon being shown that she is faithful to anything and everything except for God. She sleeps around with every idol that she can find and she pressures people to do the same and persecutes them when they don't. Is this not what we feel in our own culture? Pressure to conform and to comply with the idols that it offers. If you want to participate in the security, the satisfaction, the the joy offered by our culture, then you've got to comply, drink down the wine, and embrace its idols. And if you don't, prepare for persecution. Maybe not physical yet, but to some extent, social, economic. Babylon, no matter what Babylon you live in, Babylon always forces everyone to drink the wine of her wrath and sexual immorality. She does so to try and intoxicate people with her offer of security, satisfaction, and joy that supposedly lasts forever. But shades, Babylon's gospel is false. And our song prophetically exposes false gospels. We prophetically proclaim what verse 8 sings, fallen, fallen is Babylon. In other words, as we proclaim the gospel that God's kingdom will come, we are simultaneously saying that all worldly kingdoms will fall. 
All, all Babylons and all their lies can never truly satisfy. And the day is coming when they will all fall. Shades, that is gospel good news because Babylon's gospel is false. Fallen, fallen Babylon. That's, that's gospel good news. Shades, there is no king and no kingdom in this world that can give you true security. There is no political party and no politician that can bring you satisfaction. There is no city, there is no country, there is no culture that can deliver you full forever joy. Don't be intoxicated by the lie that they can. It's a false gospel and the world is drunk with it. And that drink will never satisfy we have good news. There is a drink that will satisfy. Living eternal water, his name is Jesus. We have good news, shades. Babylon, with all of its lies, will fall and a kingdom will come that cannot be shaken. It is eternally secure and can give you security. It is ruled by the one that your soul was made for. It can bring eternal satisfaction for it is the kingdom of Christ and Jesus is the only true, full, and forever joy. Our song prophetically exposes false gospels. That is good news. Except, except for those who refuse to let go of Babylon, their lover. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships, the beast in its image and received its mark on his forehead or his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is where we see the third thing about our song. We've seen our song indiscriminately proclaims the eternal gospel. Our song prophetically exposes false gospels. Number three, our song lovingly reveals the end of all gospels. Our song lovingly reveals the end or the, the termination point, the destiny. Lovingly reveals the end of all Gospels. If you worship the beasts of this world, and you are marked by allegiance to Babylon, you may avoid Babylon's wrath because you participate in it, drinking it down. But the Gospel is honest about where that worship and allegiance ends. Verse 10 says it ends drinking down the wine of the wrath of God. This is a hard passage about the reality that we call hell. Is it not? Like the, the images used here for hell and God's wrath, these are hard and heavy. And I do think, I do think it is important to remember that they are images, symbols, I don't think this is meant to be overly literal. In other words, this is what I mean. Revelation 14 right here and in many other places. 
Hell is described as a place of fire, sulfur, smoke. Yet, in the Gospel of Matthew, it is repeatedly described as a place of darkness. Fire and darkness cannot literally go together. Fire produces light. It expels darkness. Here, also, in Revelation 14, we're told that the worshipers of the beast are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. In other words, in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God. Yet, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that hell is a place away from the presence of the Lord. Those things can't go together in an overly wooden, literalistic way. And I don't think that they are meant to. All of this language is meant to help us understand the horror of hell's reality. What is the horror of hell's reality? That it is a play away from the glorious presence of God and only exposed to the presence of his wrath. That is the ultimate horror of hell. And and here's the deal. If you were merely told, if you were merely told hell is... The horror of hell is being away from the glorious presence of God. I don't think that would register as horror for us. But fire, sulfur, smoke. Fire and sulfur and smoke for eternity is not nearly as horrifying as being away from the presence of God. That's how much our minds are backwards and how they think about God and His glory. Fire, sulfur, and smoke, it helps us get the picture. This language points us to a reality that is beyond our comprehension. A reality that is devoid of enjoying God's glorious presence and yet full of the presence of His wrath. This is pointing us to the reality of final judgment. Fire, smoke, sulfur, those are all Old Testament images for judgment. Starting in Genesis Further, in Revelation 14, we read that this is happening in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, it's happening before the presence of the heavenly court. That's the image we're being given here. It's an image showing that this is God's just judgment. Before the holy angels and the Lamb, that's before the heavenly court. This is just judgment being rendered here. In other words, this isn't a picture of Jesus enjoying tormenting people. This this isn't a scene of sadistic torture. It's a scene of righteous judgment. And it is not a scene that makes us rejoice, at least not through the narrow lens of judgment and wrath. It's a scene that makes us weep. God himself says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Oh, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And shades, our heart beats like that. We weep like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 and verse 2, where he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish for those he knows who are lost. I've heard New Testament scholar D.A. Carson say on multiple occasions that we shouldn't be able to talk about hell without it bringing us to tears. The Bible is not 
doesn't give us any of this imagery to encourage us to bring the classic image of the fire and brimstone sermon where we just delight in talking about judgment. No, the Bible gives us this imagery so that we might shed tears, so that we might fall on our faces. This is how Jesus talked about judgment. Go, go read Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus speaks woes of judgment over Jerusalem and his woes end with weeping. He laments Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. We shouldn't be able to talk about hell without it bringing us to tears. I've been repenting all week for my inability to do so. Praying for it, for me to feel this rightly. We shouldn't be able to talk about this without tears. For our song lovingly reveals the end of all gospels. Lovingly. Our song lovingly reveals the end of all Gospels. It would be unloving not to warn people of the hellacious end of false Gospels. What, what kind of parent would I be if I didn't warn my kids about sticking their fingers in outlets or playing in the street or messing with matches? Like I'm not sure what all words you would use to describe me, but I, hardly doubt, I, I doubt you would use the word loving. Shades, our song lovingly reveals the end of all Gospels because only the Gospel of Jesus ends as good news. It ends as good news. Yes, that even includes, that even does actually include God's final righteous judgment. That is actually going to ultimately be also good news that we rejoice in. Not through the narrow lens of judgment, but through the larger lens of justice. Not through the narrow lens of wrath, but through the larger lens of redemption. Our gospel ends as good news because it ends with the day when God will bring redemption to completion through reconciliation and, yes, also through removal. And we will rejoice that evil has been removed. That's right. It's righteous judgment, and that's good news worth singing. It is the eternal gospel song in which we are called to endure. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Shades, here is a call to endure. In other words, don't give in to the intoxicating temptations of Babylon. Don't... Don't worship the beast of this world. You've seen, we've just been shown, where that path ends in eternal death. And we've seen, we've been shown, right at the beginning of this passage, where the path ends when you follow the Lamb in full forever life, filled with, with joy, with the joy of an eternal song. Shades, don't give in when it looks like Babylon is conquering and the church is being conquered. Like, like, even if it costs you your life, your social life, your economic life, your job life, your life's blood, even if it costs you your life to follow Christ, believe verse 13 right here. Believe that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. 
For they enter into eternal rest. Unlike those who worship the beast, verse 11 said, they have no rest, day or night. Shades, don't give in and don't give up when it looks like Babylon is conquering and the church is being conquered. Don't think, when, when, when you're in days like that, don't think for a second that your life for Christ is being wasted and that it doesn't matter. Verse 13 says, your deeds follow you into eternity. In, in other words, none of your labors in the Lord are in vain. You're not missing out on anything by refusing to drink Babylon's wine. You're not wasting your life, even if you are killed for Christ. You're you're showing forth his worth to the world through your words and through your wounds. And that has eternal significance. I think that's exactly what we see in verses 14 to 16. That your life for Christ is... Even the giving of it and the laying of it down has eternal significance. Verses 14 to 16, I'm just going to have to summarize for us. Here we get a vision of the second coming of Christ. Jesus, the Son of Man, comes with the clouds and he reaps the earth of all of its grain. The Greek right here indicates that this is a grain harvest. This is Christ completing redemption through reconciliation, gathering all of his people unto himself. I believe that because grain has already been used in this chapter as an image for the people of God. Do you remember it? All the way back to the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, where we got a vision of those who didn't worship the beast but faithfully followed Christ. They stood with the lamb on Mount Zion and they were called the first fruits sacrifice. First fruits. The first fruits were the first part of the grain harvest. Just as it started to, to ripen. And it was often given. It was given as a sacrifice to the Lord, as thanks to God. It was considered a sign of hope, a sign of a promise that the rest of the harvest would surely ripen and come. Right here. Because of the faithful witness of those who followed the Lamb, because they show the world his worth through their words and their wounds. As a first fruit sacrifice right here, the harvest from all nations is now fully ripe. In other words, shades, laying down your life even as a first fruit sacrifice has eternal significance. Your words and your wounds have eternal significance and one day you will see it. One day when Christ brings redemption to completion through reconciliation, you will see the results of you having followed the Lamb, of spending your life singing the song of the gospel. You will see the results because you will see all who have joined in that song to sing along. Endure in this song, Shades. Here is a call to endure. Don't give in to the intoxicating temptation of Babylon. There is a devastating end to their song. I think that's what we see in verses 17 to 20. Redemption being brought to completion here. It doesn't just happen through reconciliation. It also happens through removal. Verses 17 through 20 show us a second harvest. Not of grain, but of grapes. We're introduced to an angel who we've actually already seen back in Revelation verse 8. There he was associated with judgment for us. And here he is again. This angel commands for the earth's grapes to be harvested and thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. Just like grain was used earlier in chapter 14 as an image of God's people, so also grapes, wine, have been used as a consistent image 
of wrath. The grapes are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And verse 20 graphically says that out of that winepress flows a river of blood as deep as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's all symbolic language for finality. In the ancient world, battles that were a complete victory, sometimes they were hyperbolically spoken of as having been a battle where blood was shed that came up to a horse's chest or neck or bridle. So it's a way of saying the battle's over. It's ended. Complete victory. And 1,600 stadia, 1,600, 4 by 4 by 10 by 10, We've seen Revelation use numbers symbolically over and over again, sometimes even squaring those numbers symbolically. Number 12, symbolic of the people of God. We've seen it squared to 144, made into 144,000, symbolic of all God's people. The number four, you may remember, is the number of something worldwide. Number 10 has been used multiple times to show us something that's complete in total. In other words, four by four, 10 by 10, this is complete. Worldwide, final judgment, over, done. Not incidentally, 1600 stadia is also roughly the length of Israel, the length of the promised land from north to south. In other words, this is God completing redemption by removing all evil from the promised land, which for us is the promised land of the new creation. Shades, that day is coming. The, the day when our God will make all things new and evil will end. The gospel will win. Christ died to guarantee that. He was trodden as the grape that we should have been. He was trodden outside the city, crucified outside the city, shed his blood that runs deeper than any horse's bridle and longer than any length that you can measure. It was shed to cover you and to me and to cover me and to bring redemption to completion. This is good news and we will sing it for. Ever. This is, the, this is the fourth and final thing that we need to see about our song. Our song eternally enjoys the God of the gospel. Our song eternally enjoys the God of the gospel. Look at chapter 15 and verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of, the harps of God in their hand. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Shades, we end in the same way that we began with wilderness imagery, Exodus imagery. In Exodus 14 and 15, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and God defeated their enemy, Egypt, they stood on the shore and sang a song of victory, the song of Moses. And here we see all the saints in the end standing on the shore of a sea, the sea of glass that we saw back in chapter 4 before the throne of God, and it is now made red. It's a red sea, for it is mingled with fire. It's mingled with fire because the sea is a consistent biblical image for evil, and evil right here has been judged. The church has come through that sea, and now they are singing a song of victory. And it's not just the song of Moses, because they have a bigger and better deliverer. This is the song of the Lamb. 
He is our deliverer who has brought us to the shores of eternity, and it's to him that we sing. We sing that he's the Lord God Almighty. He's the king of the nations, and his church from all nations will eternally sing enjoying their king Jesus. That's what Revelation 19 and verse 8 declares our worship is. It's enjoyment of the glory of God. Let us rejoice exult. That's what it says. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Shades, our song eternally enjoys the God of the gospel. Eternally enjoys Jesus, our King. This is secure. This satisfies. Jesus is our joy. Shades, endure in this song. Let the vision of chapter 14 empower and equip you to sing along with this song. On the days when the beast of Babylon seems like it is conquering, don't quit singing. Don't quit, don't quit singing. Don't don't just defensively survive the wilderness of this world, but offensively bring life to this world through singing forth the gospel of Christ. On those days when it feels like Babylon is conquering and you, the church, are being crushed, turn to Revelation 14 and keep on enduring, keep on singing. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Here is the call shades to keep singing the eternal gospel song. Heed the call.